0: I'd like to ask you to turn to the shepherd's psalm, Psalm 23, the text from which that uh, uh, bit of worship was just uh, taken. I have an acquaintance who tells about the day that his uh, little granddaughter crawled onto his lap and said, Papa, tell me a story. Put me in it. And uh, I thought when I heard that, that's what we're doing with these uh, chronicles and psalms of David. Uh, We're telling his story and we're putting ourselves in it. Uh, His story is our story as well. Last week we talked about the beginning of of the story, how the Lord took uh, David from tending a few sheep and began to prepare him to be a shepherd over his people uh, Israel. And I thought it only right that we uh, look at his shepherd, song, Psalm 23. Some commentators say that uh, Psalm 23 was written while David was still a, a boy in Bethlehem. But uh, I, have to, uh, I have to disagree. Though the psalm enshrines the uh, metaphors and memories of, of that time, it really reflects uh, mature thinking. Now only a mature mind, I think, can sort through all the complexities of, of life and fix on the things that really matter. Only an old soul knows that uh, very few things are necessary, really only one. Some years ago, I determined to uh, meditate on the 23rd Psalm every morning. And so I uh, got up and let David's words run through my mind, reflected on them, preached them to myself, thought about them, read about them, journaled on them, and ended up with uh, four or five journals that I put together over the years. And therein lies my problem. When I sat down to begin to prepare this sermon, I uh, felt like I was trying to squeeze the juice back into an orange. I I normally start with uh, very little, start from scratch and try to build a sermon. In this case, I just had reams of material that I was trying to reduce into uh, one sermon. And so I decided to just take the first line, of David's poem which is really his theme it's the uh, heart of the psalm which he elaborates and explicates throughout the rest of the psalm uh, the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want well, let's read the psalm just to get ourselves oriented it's described as the psalm of David the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want he makes me lie down in green pastures Uh, The text suggests uh, something causative. It's something that he causes us, he makes us do. It's uh, really descriptive of our Lord's gentle compulsion. In fact, the next verb should be translated, he gently leads us beside quiet waters. He restores my soul, that to verb restores is the same verb that's used in the Song of Solomon to describe the Shulamites dancing, where uh, the, da- the daughters of Jerusalem say, turn, turn, shubi, shubi, they say, turn around, turn around. It's a word that's used throughout the uh, entire Old Testament for repentance, and that's the way I take it. Uh, that's the way I think it's used in the psalm. Uh, when we wander off, you know, we're on the lamb, so to speak, It turns us around. And then he leads us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And we often see the valley of the shadow of death at the end of the meadow, and it's appropriate to do so, but really it's in the middle. The word uh, valley of the shadow of death is really one word in, in, in David's poem that means deep darkness. It's used of the darkness before creation. It's used of uh, the darkness of a well shaft. It's evocative of those uh, times when everything around us is bleak and dark and black and we have only uh, the Lord's presence to uh, depend on. David says, even there I will fear no evil for you are with me. You'll notice the shift in pronouns at this point from the third person plural he to the very personal second person. You, because it's in those those dark times uh, when your spouse says that he or she doesn't have the energy to go on, when you discover that your 15-year-old daughter is pregnant, when your life begins to unravel in front of your eyes, when you get that note from uh, your employer that you're not needed, you're not useful anymore, you're retired early because you've outlived your usefulness. So those are the times when his presence becomes very very precious to us your rod and your staff they comfort me you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies it's a wonderful picture our lord has always been inclined to eat with the with the likes of us it's what made him seem so dangerous to the clergy of his day that he was willing to eat and drink with sinners still not embarrassed to do so You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. It's a symbol of of hospitality. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love, that's uh, that word for covenant love, uh, the promises that God makes. uh, As Bob Dylan says, God don't make promises that he don't keep. Surely goodness and covenant love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. it's a wonderful picture going home our homes are simply pictures of what uh, home was intended to be with with that sense of warmth and togetherness community and love home is where they have to take you in that's where you belong that's home we read uh, about E.T. and the Flying Dutchman and uh, Ulysses and, and we weep for ourselves we too want to go home That's where our hearts are, and that's where he's leading us. Now, as I say, that whole psalm is is really just an unfolding of the first uh, phrase, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then he tells us in what ways he meets that wanting, that sense of need that uh, we have. I don't know how many of you remember uh, a movie of a few years back entitled City Slickers. Do you remember that? Uh, It's a story about three New York men that decided to go out to the Old West to find themselves. The year before, they had all run with the bulls in Pamplona, Spain. And now they were going to join a cattle drive from uh, New Mexico to Colorado. The main character in the movie was a man by the name of Mitch Robbins, who was a very successful uh, uh, advertising salesman. Uh, 39 years of age, had a lot going for him. He was uh, affluent, lived in a spacious apartment in Roosevelt Island in New York. Uh, had a beautiful wife and two charming children and you know, a seven handicap and uh, kind of a quirky sense of humor. And, and two two buddies named uh, Ed and Phil. And they all decided to uh, to join this cattle drive. Because, as uh, uh, Mitch's wife put it, Barbara was her name, you've lost your smile. In fact, birthdays were, were the hardest uh, uh, time of the year for Robbins because it kept reminding him that he was getting longer in the tooth every day and, and he still hadn't found out what life was for. So they go down to, to uh, New Mexico to, uh, to learn to be drovers. While they're down there, they meet the, the last of the Marlborough men. You, you, <laughs> you may remember him a leathery old character named Curly, whom Robbins describes as a saddlebag with eyes. <laughs> and uh, he teaches them how to ride and rope and how to join the brotherhood of drovers. Uh, Curly is uh, especially impressive to Mitch because he always wears this perpetual smile. He rarely talks. And he seems to have it all together. He's invincible and all knowing, and you know, he's, he's everything that uh, Robins would like to be. And so one day while they're following the, the herd, Mitch says to Curly, what, What's the secret of your, of your poise, your presence? And Curly says, Well, you've got to find that one thing. You've got to find that one thing. The problem is that Mitch doesn't know what that one thing is, and Curly isn't talking. And then, then the old Buckaroo dies, and and Curly, uh, you know, he doesn't pass that information on, and and we don't know. And then the house lights go up, and we're still in the dark. We don't have the foggiest idea what what that one thing is that you have to find that will make you a more peaceful, assured version of yourselves. Now, I talk to a lot of men and women that that are looking for that one thing. They describe it as a a sort of a calling. Something is out there calling to them, something familiar, and yet something far away, something they can't quite name. Mark Twain said, you don't know what it is you want, but you want it so much your heart fairly breaks. And I think we know what he's talking about. There, There is this longing, this hunger, this yearning, for something, there's this one thing out there that that we search for, that something that will give meaning and significance and purpose and happiness in our lives. That wanting it just keeps pulling at us, tugging at us, drawing us on, on, making us think that. At some point in our life, we're going to find whatever it is that we're, that we're searching for. That's why we're so restless, you see. That's why we're always on the move. Uh, Blaise Pascal, the 17th century philosopher, put it this way. He states it in terms of men, but it's just as applicable to women. When I have set myself now and then to consider the various distractions of men the toils and dangers to which they expose themselves in the court or in the camp. Whence arise so many quarrels and passions, such daring and such dangerous exploits, exploits, I have discovered that all these misfortunes of men arise from one thing only, that they are unable to stay quietly in their own chamber. Hence it comes that play, the society of women, war, and offices of state are sought after. Hence it comes that men so love noise and, and movement. Why do we ski the tough slopes? Why do we race our, uh, our bikes across the desert? Why do we jump off of a uh, half dome with our hang gliders? You know? and, and why do we run for political office? And why do we take karate classes and all the other stuff that men and women do? You know, what, what drives us? What, what is it that's pushing us? Why can't we rest? Why are we always so restless? Alabama says, uh, all we really got to do is live and die, and, and I'm in a hurry, and I don't know why. And uh, the world doesn't help us. All the world does is increase that uh, restlessness. Advertisements uh, keep enticing us to, to buy this, acquire that, you know. Easy payment plans and rebates and no money down generous incentives and sale packages. You know, a friend of mine describes what he calls the Barbie doll law, that what used to be an accessory soon comes to be a necessity. You've got to have more. And yet, the more we acquire, the more we want to acquire. You remember what Christmas was like when you were a little kid? You get all these presents, you know, and you half a dozen or a dozen presents, and you unwrap them all and you get to the end and you ask yourself is this all you know it's not that you're greedy it's just that something was promised that you've not yet received we all have that feeling and even uh, grown up kids you know we, we have to have this toy and then we purchase it and it just turns into ashes in our hands but we have to have something else what is it, what is it that drives us and impels us when we're young and actually all through our lives we're told that sex is the answer that's what we that's what we're looking for some of you may remember uh, uh, robert crumbs mr natural the combination grew and dirty old man whose antics enlivened the pages of uh, university newspapers back in the 60s and i still remember one segment in the berkeley barb um, Mr. Natural Straight Man is watching this co-ed walk by in this very short, very tight dress. And he says to uh, Mr. Natural, is sex the answer? Mr. Natural says, no, my boy, sex is the question. And indeed it was, and it still is. It's still the question. They decide the, uh, beside uh, all the propaganda in its favor. Uh Despite uh, in my P.D. Blue, we still don't know what it's for. We have no idea what sex is for. Isn't it ironic that the act which more than any other ought to assuage our loneliness only increases it? We ask ourselves as we're growing up, where is this great sex? You know, it's everywhere promised and nowhere delivered. Tina Turner belts out her, her creed. What does love have to do with it? I understand where she's coming from, you know, the beating she endured in her marriage. And after a while, we, you know, we too decide we have to get along without the complications of love. There is some hunger for intimacy, some desire, some yearning, longing for love inside that, uh, that just cannot be satisfied. It keeps us restless. It keeps us on the move. Friendships don't satisfy, at least they don't touch those deep needs for life and love that we uh, long for. Some forgotten poet said, even with the loved around me, still my heart is lonely. You can be lonely in a crowd. And even the best of our friends don't really come through for us. They try, but uh, they really cannot touch those deep needs that we have for for intimacy and, and friendship closeness companionship and if we try to you know if, if, if we if we really think that they're going to and we really push people in that direction then we we just place on them a burden that, that they can't handle and, and then they leave or they move away and then we go looking for somebody else to curse with our demands as somebody said we're very difficult people. All we want is infinite love, and no one comes through for us. Our parents don't come through for us, especially our fathers. I, you know, I, don't, I I don't know how many men I've talked to who tell me that they they, they sought desperately for validation from their from their fathers, and, and and they never got it. No matter how hard they tried to please their fathers. Their fathers could never express their, their appreciation to the extent that was that was necessary. Most of us would have to agree that we spend our growing up years, looking for acceptance and validation from our fathers. And, and I'm thinking from the standpoint of men, I, th- I think it's also true of mothers. But it seems that fathers are particularly, lacking. They they just they just don't come through. Even those of us that had good fathers. I had a very kind and loving father. Uh, he really, he really loved me. I knew he did. I have the deepest of respect for him, but uh, I never felt that I got from him the validation that I that I sought. I quoted Robert Bly's well-known phrase last week: "There's never enough father." I think most of us would say that. I, I still remember standing by my father's casket a few years back and looking at him for the last time, and Carolyn was standing by me, and she put her arm around me, and she said, it's too late, isn't it? She knew exactly what I was thinking. It's too late to gain his approval. The line from one of Lynn Dayton's uh, uh, novels came to mind. Are we never free from the tyranny of our father's love? We we seek from our parents the, the... Some love that will satisfy, and and no matter how much our parents love us, they they cannot satisfy us. Uh, Education yields only fragmentary results. I talk to a lot of men and women who decide at some point in their life, though they have a vacation, to go back to school. It's kind of an endemic uh, uh, longing that we have. I did it myself. At some point, you think, well, I just... If I just go back to school then then i 'll find whatever it is that i 'm that i 'm looking for, but as someone has said, you go to school and you take one sounding after another, but you never get to the bottom of things I think that 's why there 's so much melancholy on on campus campuses are out university campuses are not joyful places, a lot of sadness there because people are looking for something that cannot be supplied in that that place. The philosopher in uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, said, I, I tasted wisdom, but it was far from me. And I think that's the silent conclusion of everyone who, who tries to go back to school. Success is never final. Ray Kroc, the founder of uh, McDonald's, says, uh, Nothing recedes like success. Does it make any difference uh, what we achieve or acquire no amount of success ever really satisfies us. You know, the, the long climb from the bottom of the hill to the top is exhilarating. You, you, uh, you endure the privations, the long commutes, the challenges, the competition, the separation from your family, and, and finally you get to the top. One transaction puts you, uh, puts you over the top, but the top is never the pinnacle that you thought it would be. There's always some other deal it has to be pulled off. Some other transaction that has to be made. Uh, something that will give you that sense of final accomplishment. Emily Dickinson says, "Success sweet to those who ne'er succeeded." Heard Ted Turner say in in an interview with Barbara Walters some years ago, "Success is an empty bag." Now there's a man who's achieved success. Uh, I mean, I think everyone would agree but yet he he describes it as an empty bag. Tell me, why is it that the people that have already made more money than they could ever possibly spend in a lifetime just keep on wanting to make more money? Why is it that those uh, who have achieved uh, their goals of ten years back and stand on the pinnacle want something more? It's because there's nothing recedes like success. It always is just beyond our, our grasp and then there's uh, there 's wealth you know that that seems to go along with success in most cases, but uh, wealth itself does not satisfy money talks uh, as someone has said, but mostly it deceives us. It lies to us, telling us that uh, that affluence will make us uh, happy and secure. The uh, philosopher again who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, probably Solomon, who was the wealthiest man you know, on the earth at that time said whoever loves money never has enough whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income we pity the uh, you know the wealthy old tycoon who has a money fixation but we never learn the lesson the more you have the more you want there's never enough having what we think is enough just uh, becomes a, a goad to acquire more uh As they say, fame is fleeting. That may be some of the truest words ever ever spoken. You know, you and I may do something that causes people to stare at us for a moment or two on the street, but then we're forgotten. Emerson said, every hero becomes a bore at last. And there's nothing quite as pathetic as an old has-been trying to make a comeback. Well, what drives people to do that? Well, because they've tasted success at one point. They've tasted fame and they want more of it. But again, the more of it you get the more the more you want there's no end to to what we will uh, what we will try to achieve in order to become famous, but uh, prominence does not satisfy and even marriage is not what it's cracked up to be uh, we're told in our youth and then we honestly believe it, because that's what the fairy tales tell us, that there's some causal relationship between getting married and living happily ever after. But it simply isn't true. We think that if we just can get married, then we'll be satisfied. But staying married is a lot of hard work, and uh, there's a lot of heartache involved, and most people don't uh, stay with it too long. They start out well, but they fail because the emptiness is inside where no one can touch it. And then uh, for some there are these things we call affairs, you know, to give it that lighthearted term, but uh, people that have been through it know how devastating uh, these uh, matters are. How terribly destructive to one's soul. And then there are the divorces and the Custody fights and the separation from family and the demolition of, of what used to be a happy home and the, you know, the lingering sadness that people just don't get over. Now, marriage is not the final solution for which we uh, we search. And then there are children. For for many people, having children is uh, th- that's the primary. A focus of their life. I think if I just have a child, then I would be satisfied. Marriage is not what I thought it would be, but but if I could just have a child, then I'll be then I'll be fulfilled. Now, children are wonderful. I've had a bunch, and I have a bunch of grandchildren. I I love our grandchildren right now. I just love to pester them. I have to agree with whoever said it. I think it was Augustine that uh, the innocence of children is related more to their size than their substance, but nevertheless, they're they're fun. They're fun. But I have discovered that children are an awful lot of hard work. And they can break your heart. And then they leave. <laughs> that's what they're if it were for, you know, to train them to leave. And for some the empty nest is just more than then people can endure. No, children are not the final solution for which we search. And then there are those that uh, believe that retirement is the chief end of man. That, you know, that's what we're here for. We, to work hard, to make enough money so we can retire in style and we can buy a cabin up in Crouch or McCall or wherever, you know. And so we just uh, give it everything we have and then we come to that, that point and, and we retire and then we die. Because we're like Alexander. You know, there aren't any more kingdoms to to conquer. We've arrived. Uh, Henry David Thoreau describes that as destination sickness. We've arrived, and there's no place else to go. And, And even if we don't die, we just go around with that dead look in our eyes. You know, there's just nothing, nothing to live for. We've achieved all of our goals. We have everything we ever wanted, and we don't want anything that we have. Now, it's true that there are some people who imagine themselves to be happy by just not thinking about things. You know, These are the ones who go for all the gusto. You know, eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die is, is the oldest ploy in the world to try to quell that, that hunger of our heart for something more. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Because the question just keeps coming up. What has all of our striving and working and driving and spending done for us? Where has it brought us? W.H. Auden has a a poem that I ran across some years ago that expresses, uh, uh, well, what I'm trying to say. Faces along the bar cling to their average day. The lights must never go out. The music must always play. Lest we know where we are lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the dark, who have never been happy or good. Coleridge said that laughter is but an art to drown the outcry of the heart. You can't get away from that nagging sense of dissatisfaction. doesn't make any difference. What we achieve or what we acquire, what we accumulate, there is in our greatest joys that deep sense of sadness that we can never get away from. And then there is that final frustration, which is death, which is a sure thing for all of us. As George Bernard Shaw Shaw says, the the statistics on death are very impressive. One out of every one person dies. Just as certain as taxes. All of which leads me to, to one conclusion. There is no earthly joy. Well, there are, you know, there are serendipities along the way, little, little surprises, little happy, uh, joyous occasions that, that really just make us even more sad because that's the way life ought to be all, all the time. You know. But what it comes down to is this. There is no earthly joy. Isn't it odd, then, that, that we keep searching? Doesn't it strike you as strange that we keep repeating that mistake over and over and over again? I don't think any fact is more comprehensively taught in the world than this, that no matter what we achieve, what we acquire, we will never find what we're looking for. We will never be satisfied on this, on this earth. There is no earthly joy. Then why do we keep on searching? And I'll tell you why. It's because we have to. We have to. That yearning, that longing, that hunger, those aspirations, your dreams, every uh, desire of your nature is really a longing for God. That's the most fundamental need of all. That's the, that's the foundational want. That's what drives us is that hunger, our eternal need for God. Uh, George MacDonald put it this way. It's this formless idea of something at hand that keeps men and women striving to tear from the bosom of the world the secret of their hopes. How little they know that what they look for in reality is their God. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're made for. We're made for God's love and we cannot live without it. That's why everything else is just playing around. It's trivial stuff. The really important stuff. The thing for which we're made is is God himself. Do you realize that? Every yearning of your heart, every longing, every dream, every aspiration is really just a a desire for God. G.K. Chesterton said, with what I think is penetrating insight, men go to brothels to find God. He's absolutely right. That's what drives us. That's what motivates us. That's what makes us do everything that that we do. There is that insatiable hunger for God within us. As Augustine said, we were made for God. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in Him. Now that may surprise you, you know, if you're not accustomed to church. It may surprise you to know that, that all of your hungers are really a hunger for God. But there are there are moments when you when you know that's true. You know that. As a friend of mine put it, there there are yearnings that I have on Saturday that would have repelled me on Sunday. He he was a fellow who would never darken the door of a church. But there were there were times when he was all by himself off hunting in the mountains or in some other place, and he would get these yearnings for God that he could not put away. You see, a yearning on Saturday for something that would have repelled me on on Sunday is is the way he uh, way he put it. That yearning is the first faint stirring of our recognition of our need for God. And once aroused, that yearning is never still. It will not let us alone. That's God calling us. My sheep hear my voice. He said. He's calling. That's where that hunger comes from. Now, David would say we need to listen to our wants. They're intended to take us to the place where we shall not want. You know, what, what an incredible simplicity. I mean, what a stupendous thought. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Is the answer to all of those wantings in our lives. Now, I'd like to ask you at this point, to bow your heads and your hearts before the Lord. I have more to say on this phrase, but I want us to stop at this point and and listen to our hearts. Your heart's a teacher you can trust. God speaks to us through those wants and yearnings that we have. And as we prepare to celebrate our, our oneness with Christ, our union with Him, like for us to examine our own hearts I mine and you yours and take a moment to acknowledge that what we really want, what we really need what we really must have is God himself not his gifts nothing but God himself as Jeremiah puts it, he is our true pastor if I can put it this way, it's only when we graze on him that our hearts are satisfied it's eating and drinking of him that, that satisfies us. Isaiah said, O oh, everyone that thirsts, come to the waters, and you that have no money, come by and eat, come without money and without price, come by wine uh, come buy wine and milk. For why do you satisfy yourself or try to satisfy yourself with that which is not bread? Or to use Jeremiah's uh, illustration, why do we dig uh, empty cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water? Why do we look for satisfaction in anything other than God? If we've been doing so, it's idolatry. And we need to repent of it. We need to change our mind. We need to have a godly sorrow over that idolatry and admit. What David tells us is true that God and God alone is our source of satisfaction. And we will never find life apart from Him. Never. Lord Jesus, as we come to gather around this table and in symbol and metaphor, eat and drink of you, we want to be reminded again that. You are our only source of life. As David would say, Whom have we in heaven but you, and on earth we desire nothing less, nothing else. We need you, and you alone. Only you. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Only He can satisfy. And so as we come together, as as your flock around this table to eat and drink with you and of you. May we be satisfied in our souls with what you are to us, we ask in Jesus' name.